Hi, this is Pastor Brittany Isaac from Urban Village Church, Chicago. We are a church that is bold, inclusive, and relevant. I know that many of you out there are hungry for a gospel message of healing and wholeness, a message that leads to a life transformed by Christ. I hope that this podcast does just that. And if it does, would you please consider making a financial gift that will support this gospel-inclusive ministry? You can do that by going to urbanvillagechurch.org forward slash give. Thanks so much and have a blessed day. Uh, Today we're going to read scripture from the Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to raise your hand and we'll be able to um, pass those along to you. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's colloquial of bride and friends. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is perfume poured out. Therefore, the maidens love you. Draw me after you. Let us make haste. The king has brought me into his chambers. We will exult and rejoice in you. We extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. I am black and beautiful, O daughters of Jerusalem, with the tents of Kedor, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has gazed on me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. Tell me, you whom my soul loves, where your pasture, where you pasture your flock, where you make it lie down at noon. For why should I be like one who is veiled beside the flocks of your companions? The word of God for the people of God. My name is Jarrell Wilson. I am the Church Start resident here. Um, It's a fancy word for pastor. Um, And we are going to be talking about sex this morning. Amen? So fun fact, we record all of these sermons, but this one is also being video recorded. Jess Lee volunteered. Um, The District Committee on Ordained Ministry wanted to see me in action. So you can all just say, hi, District Committee on Ordained Ministry, because they're... Um, Methodist love, big words, and really long acronyms, so you can just call it DCOM. Um, We have been in this series about the body, our bodies, our faiths, and we started last week with a passage of scripture from one of my dear friends in the faith, the Apostle Paul. Now, Paul gets a bad rap for a lot of reasons. Sometimes they are valid, and sometimes we forget that he is a person in context. And I feel like last week we forgot to mention the very important context that Paul the Apostle was in. This is a man who believed that Jesus Christ was coming at any second. And so when he said things like, only weak people get married because they can't control their sexual desires. Or when he said, if you commit a sexual sin, you commit it against the body, and then you should just like be an awful person forever. Paul is writing from a specific mindset, thinking that all you have to do is remain celibate for three to five days, maybe a month at the max, and Jesus is just going to come right back and take us, and then we'll be done. 
Pa wasn't thinking that like we would still be here thousands of years later and would be reading his letters to his friends and holding them as high as scripture. Um, and I think that knowing that context about Paul informs the way that we read him and that we read the views that he's presenting. And so I think it is important when we read this passage of scripture of a woman who's saying, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for his love is better than wine. I am black and beautiful. There is a context that this woman is speaking in. She's speaking in antiquity, in a time where women aren't allowed to own property, where women aren't allowed to be sexual beings unless they are concubines, sex workers, or potential mothers. She's speaking in a time where having a difference of skin appearance is viewed as either being sinful or as being a person who is outside of the community. And yet, she claims her blackness has beauty. Right? Amen. <laughs> this bold woman owns her own sexuality at a time where women aren't allowed to do so. Adultery is something that only a man can commit because only a man has the right to have sex with people freely. Having sex outside of marriage isn't adultery. Adultery is having sex with someone else's wife. The sin is committing an act or a crime against someone else by using their property. Yet, this woman has her own sexual agency in the text. <laughs> the Bible is just so exciting. <laughs> isn't it? I'm just loving it. She isn't a sex worker. She isn't a concubine. But, she, but here she is, saying that she has a, her own sexual desires. She's a hard-working woman, like she states in verse 6. She tends to all of her brother's vineyards, and she works so hard at them she doesn't have time to take care of her own, which, that's a sermon. How many of us have been keeping other people's vineyards and haven't had time to take care of our own? But there's too many sermons. We've got to keep moving on this one. This one. This one, says the Lord. She has this amount of selflessness, but she's also a sufferer of familial abuse. The word that she uses for love in verse 2 is used multiple times in Scripture. Uh, y'all, I'll post the link to this later so you don't have to write it down. This, type of, this word for love is used in Leviticus chapter 10, verse 4, and chapter 20, verse 20, and Numbers 36, 11, and 1 Samuel chapter 10, verses 14 through 15, and Esther chapter 2, verse 7, just to name a few. However, the Song of Songs text uses this word for love that's typically used to describe family relationships, like between a mother and a daughter, or between Esther and her uncle Mordecai, but she uses it to describe her own connection to this man she's singing about. The way that she uses love is, differently than the way, is different than the way that other people use it. The scripture then points us to this empowered woman and presents her as completely normal. She is not peculiar to these people. She's singing about her love and her attraction to a man openly, out in the open. She is proud, she is bragging about how his kisses taste, which means she's already tasted those lips. 
Uh, <laughs> right? It is rare that a woman is presented as having agency to make her own decisions in scripture, much less making her own decisions about who she gets to marry or who she gets to seduce. To see a woman flaunting her sexuality openly and proudly is something completely unique to this text. Most of the sexual exploits of women in scripture take place in secret or in quiet, such as Ruth seducing Boaz in Ruth chapter 3 verses 7 through 10, or Esther seducing King Xerxes in Esther chapter 2 verses 1 through 20. Her seduction took a little bit longer. The nameless woman in this text isn't really even given a name, but she is given agency that Sarah and Rachel, that Leah and Hagar and Rebecca aren't given. Even Mary, the mother of Jesus, doesn't get the type of agency that this woman does. She's given by the author a sexuality that isn't demonized and isn't used to shame her. Other women whose sexualities are presented as being out and in the public, Vashti, she got sent away. There's Delilah, Herodias, there's the great whore of Babylon. I feel like there's a little bit of shame in that title. More than just being used as plot devices to personify evil, women given sexuality in the scriptural text are ultimately blamed for all sin that exists in the world. Um, our good friend Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 2 through 11 through 15, he basically blames all women for sin. And Eve is the prime example he gives of why we can't trust women in general. If Eve was a trickster, then all women are tricksters too. But I just want to press back on our good friend Paul. Eve wasn't given a commandment, Adam was. So we should probably redirect a little bit of that blame in a, you know, anyhow, another sermon. The continued thread of scriptural slut shaming is continued in most places of scripture, but not in this one, in Song of Songs or in Ruth or in, even in Esther. In Ruth, we see a foreign woman using sex to get what she needs to survive and to take care of her widowed mother-in-law, and God blesses her for doing this action and makes her the ancestor of King David, who is the father of King Solomon, whose text we are reading today. And in Esther, we see this woman using her feminine wiles to seduce a king and to basically use her body to save her people from being exterminated but only in Song of Songs is a woman given the opportunity to have sex, to seduce a man, simply for the sake of having sex and seducing a man. Now, for me, as a person raised in an evangelical culture that taught me that you're supposed to save sex till marriage and that you're not supposed to talk about sex in public, this is a really radical idea. And I don't have to go anywhere to find it, but scripture. Isn't that something? All you had to do was read the Bible the whole time to challenge the things that you were taught. Y'all aren't with me, but we're getting there. <laughs> We are getting there in Jesus' name, right? Raise a hand. <laughs> Scripture presenting a woman taking control of her sexuality as, as normal 
and seems to fly in the face of the traditional values that Christians in America have been placing on sex. And then claim that these traditional values came from God, but the Song of Songs has a different story. For the author of the Song of Songs to present this nameless woman in such a manner, it's not only countercultural to the ideas of antiquity or countercultural for the ideas of scripture, but it's a little bit countercultural for people of faith today. Although people today like to say women have come so far and things are so much better than they used to be, there are still plenty of examples of sexism and heteropatriarchy that keep women down today. Thank you. I hear another amen, please. I know y'all see it. The same sinful spirit, I'm saying it's a sinful spirit, that empowers men to think that they have power over women, over women's bodies, that they have the right to police women's sexuality instead of leaving that up to the Lord, uh, that men are the ultimate authority on what is or is not acceptable behavior for women, is not only deeply steeped in scriptural text, but it's also deeply steeped in our secular scriptures. You can find it in our Supreme Court rulings, in our Constitution. You can find it in our television shows and the dress codes that we uh, force upon children in schools. You can find it in state laws. You can find it in songs that show up on pop radio and even in some hymns in our hymnals, which UVC doesn't have hymnals, but if this was like an older Methodist church, y'all would have them under your seat or next to you, but that's neither here nor there. Rather than calling out this sinful attack on the imago day of women, the fact that women are created in the image of God, the church in all of its forms have joined forces with the oppressive powers of evil and injustice to keep women under the feet and in cases under the fists of men. Oh, I don't think y'all heard me. Rather than calling out the sin of sexism, the church has joined forces with evil, oppressive forces in the world to subjugate women. Amen. Thank you. But the author of the Song of Songs speaks to us even today. Scripture says that is not the way. Mm. The Lord has made a way for us to move out of the chains of sexism and heteropatriarchy even today. Like this thing is thousands of years old and yet it challenges our modern notions. And some people have tried to explain away this beautiful passage of scripture as simply metaphorical. But the Reverend Dr. Will Gaffney of Bright Divinity School does not believe that this text is a metaphor at all. She states, the Song of Songs is a celebration of erotic love. Not surprisingly, its literal reading was quickly abandoned in favor of allegorical readings in much of Judaism and Christianity, where it has been read as symbolizing the love of God or the love of Christ or God's love for Israel and for the church. I concur with her opinion that the allegorical or metaphorical interpretation is used as a way of further isolating and ignoring the sexuality of women. Gaffney continues, 
a literal reading requires coming to terms with the raw sexual desire and gratification called for by this woman to her man in the scriptures, which many readers found and still find incompatible with their own notion of scripture, in spite of the fact that these verses are enshrined and canonized in it. And I think that it's easy for us to just say sexism is bad and it has harmed women. But I think we need to point out that sexism is also bad for men too. It limits the ability of men to express their emotions, which makes them aloof. It actually kills men faster because men have been put into a box and aren't allowed to express the full range of human emotion. They have to maintain either one, uh, one of two forms of expression, anger or apathy. Men don't get to experience joy or happiness. They don't get to say, I'm feeling jubilant this morning. They don't get to cry with their best friends because men don't cry. They don't get to unleash emotions because of the system of power that was put in place. Men are now killing themselves with patriarchy. And I think that's sinful too. Not only is patriarchy oppressing women and making it more difficult for women to move and operate in the world, it oppresses women doubly because an oppressed man now needs to oppress someone else to get out the things that he's been containing. You see, the, the problem with sin is even when we recognize it and see that it's wrong, is it so devious it gets under our skin and we can't see the full weight of the way that it's operating. But this text reminded me of someone, of my favorite United Methodist woman, Beyonce Giselle Knowles Carter. <laughs> I have um, believed that Beyonce was my patron saint since listening to Radio Disney when Destiny's Child's Jumpin' Jumpin' came on. <laughs> With her song formation, I believe that Beyonce joins the chorus of this nameless woman. They share quite a few things in common. Both women claim to be black and beautiful. Both of them flaunt their sexuality without shame, and yet they get criticized for it by other people. Both are celebrated for their hard work, but they aren't given their fair share of accolades. Both are centered and grounded in their faith. In writing my final academic paper for seminary, seminary ended, thank the Lord, I found it impossible to not make the connection between Beyonce's formation and this passage from the Song of Songs, which led me to a more pressing theological question. Have we been missing important messages from God because they're delivered to us by a different means than we're used to receiving them? The glaring answer is yes. Despite what you may or may not think about my queen, Beyonce, she is the product of decades of Christian discipleship. Discipleship. 
She was born and raised and baptized in a Methodist church. She took part in Sunday schools and small groups for years. Every single tour she goes on before they perform, Beyonce acts as liturgist and requests prayer requests, praise for people, and praise to Father, Mother, God. Mm. She's been sneaking theological messages into her music since 1998. And you can see that she has to be challenging her own notions of what God is and what people are supposed to be. Because in 1998, she released, oh, sorry, now we're about to go on off the little rant. Sorry, DCOM. Uh, she released this song called Nasty Girl, which talks about how this girl dresses inappropriately and she should be ashamed of herself and blah, 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 blah. But in 2013, she moves from calling these women nasty to saying that they wake up flawless. She moves from shaming people to saying God made this person in God's own image. And then she moves even further from 2013 to 2016, in which people have been celebrating her, and some people even use this cute little nickname, Beezus. I'm uh, not in that camp occasionally, uh, but that's beside <laughs> the point, neither here nor there. She even explicitly says, God is God and I am not, and steps out of the seat of judgment so that other people are wrestling with God and not having to go through her or through any other middleman. You see, when we're in a system that decides to focus on our discipleship, our lives get changed. The people that we are in 1998 change. We're very different than the people we are in 2016. And if we're truly seeking God every day, the person who we are last week should be different than the person we are right now. God isn't a stagnant God, but is rather moving with us onto a trajectory. This is the idea that John Wesley calls Christian perfection or sanctification. This idea that God is moving us by the power of the Holy Spirit from being isolated and slaves to sin and death to being freed in Christ, to move on to being more patient and loving and kind and joyful and, and filled with an abundance of love, not only for ourselves, but for the world. This work of holiness isn't just for us as individuals, but rather it's for the entire society. It's not enough for me as Jarrell Wilson to say, sexism is wrong and bad and I'm going to fight it. I need to go to society too and point to my senators and to my congressmen and to my aldermen and, to, and notice how many men that is there and say that this sexist system cannot stand because God made women in her own image. And because of that reality, we are called to a higher standard. We cannot continue to sit idly by while people are being oppressed and told that they need to be ashamed of themselves and that they're just going to go to hell and gonna die and that they aren't loved by God. We can't sit idly by while people walk up and down the street without hope because they think that God has abandoned them. We have been called by God through the scriptures and through our community to speak out and reject those lies. None of that was written down, so I need to edit this. So where does that leave us? What are the answers to our questions about sex? Because here, Paul presented something about sex, and Paul is in the Bible. 
And here, the author of the Song of Songs wrote something about sex, and that's in the Bible too. What are we to do with this? But don't, don't worry, y'all. I have a master's degree. <laughs> I have um, studied long and hard, and I have prayed, I've read the scriptures, and God has revealed truth to me. <laughs> Can y'all say the word truth? We're ready, huh? And I was like, Lord, what are the answers to these difficult life questions? And God gave me the answer. Are y'all ready for it? Yes. Repeat after me. I don't know. <laughs> and it's not for me to know what the answers to these questions are. Because the goal of Christianity isn't to get answers to our questions. The goal is to struggle with God like Jacob did and walk away changed. It isn't about quoting the right scriptures to prove our points or to build our own arguments. It's about wrestling with the scriptures and challenging them with other scriptures and with our reason and with our own personal experience and with our communities and with our traditions. Our goal isn't to walk away as if we have been elevated and experienced, but rather to walk away knowing that we are humbled in the sight of God because it is too much for us to grasp. Rather, the goal is to wrestle with community and to build stronger relationships with others so that when we're faced with these ethical dilemmas and problems, we have people we can lean on, people that have dedicated themselves to the process of moving us along to Christian perfection, of moving us along in the process of sanctification. It's a not, not about saying yes or no, that is okay, or that is black and white, and this is a gray area. Rather, it's about saying I have a group of people that are behind me, and no matter what problem is presented, we're going to walk through this problem together. It's about listening to that gentle voice of the Holy Spirit and picking the choices that make us more like Jesus. God doesn't give us a blueprint for life. God is not our Leslie note from Parks and Recreation. We're not going to get a binder with a five-year plan that tells us all of the things that we need to do in order to live our best life now. Yes, that is shade. God gives us something better. Freedom in Christ to work out our own salvation. That's a phrase from our good friend Paul. Paul also said last week in the scripture we read that all things are lawful for us, but not all things are beneficial. And the way that we work out what is or is not beneficial to us relies on our own definition of sin. And for me, sin is anything that separates me from God or separates me from my community. And my community is the whole world, okay? So if the way that I am enjoying the sexual life that God has given me as a gift is stopping me from acting out as a full neighbor to someone else, is stopping me or from loving myself fully, then I know that I am not in the will of God. And it is for me to turn to my community and ask for help. 
if the way that I'm living my sexual life is bringing harm rather than joy, then something needs to be corrected. And it is a very difficult and vulnerable process to share the depths of who you are with people. And I think that, sorry, this also isn't in the notes. I think that is why Jesus changes the language of faith. We go from this contractual statement of faith into a familial model because families have larger space to bear each other's burdens. It's shameful to come up to a stranger on the street and to say, hey, I'm really struggling with looking at this or doing that. But when you come to your family, there isn't shame in family love because love covers that multitude of sin. And you see, oof, sorry, and with the power of the Holy Spirit leading and guiding our conversations, we know that whatever result we get from bringing it to our community is the one that will bring us life because the people in our community have already signed up to love us. As we just saw in baptism a few weeks ago, we communally made a pledge to walk with each other and with the person being baptized through the struggles they're going through to make sure that they become the best that God has for them. Mm. God made our sexualities and gave us all that we need to determine how to use them in a way that glorifies God. But it is up to us to do the spiritual work of rooting out the problematic things that we have been taught and our own work to do that life-giving research that brings life into our sexual lives rather than shame and guilt. Shame and guilt are not gifts of the Holy Spirit. It is up to us to seek out the sex-positive scriptures and theologies and to weigh them and wrestle with them against the ones that aren't so sex-positive. It is up to us to follow the lead of our Methodist sister, Beyonce, and to get in formation. Amen? amen? And amen. Will you please pray with me? God... We are a people with baggage. We have been taught things about ourselves and about others that are not true. But you are a God of truth, a God of freedom and deliverance. So we trust in you and in the gift of the Holy Spirit, knowing that you want what is best for us. Give us the grace that we need to make wise choices with our sexual lives. Give us the grace we need to honor you in our decisions and to honor our communities. And give us the courage we need to wrestle with these subjects open and honestly. It requires a great depth of vulnerability that you demonstrated that vulnerability for us in the person of Jesus Christ. Fill us with his spirit so that we might be more like him and share your love with the world. Amen.